Welcome to the Tinnily Talks podcast, where we dive into the common legal issues facing today's community associations. Whether you're a manager, board member, or homeowner, you're sure to pick up on some nuggets of advice to help you build a successful community in this ever-evolving and changing world. Hello and welcome to Tinley Talks. I'm Ramona Acosta. And I'm Steve Tinley. And today we're discussing HOA assessment collections with Corey Todd. Corey's an attorney with Tinley Law Group and our Mission Viejo headquarters and is a supervising attorney for our assessment collection division, Altera Assessment Recovery. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate taking the time and uh, getting to go a little overview of collections and uh, getting all you guys on board. Awesome. Well, um... Steve, could you just kind of give us a broad overview about assessment collections? Just kind of give us a um, collections 101. Absolutely. So uh, collections, this is one of the more you know frustrating and unsavory things that managers and boards have to deal with, right? But it's one of the important things that boards have to deal with because who do we represent? Who do we work with, right? We work with nonprofits. These are what these homeowners associations are. So when we total up our budget, for the entire year for a homeowners association, that budget is, is dependent upon everybody paying their assessments. There's no other source of revenue for the association. So when you have owners who are delinquent, who are not paying, it's imperative that we uh, utilize the collection remedies that are given to us, and we'll talk about those today, in order to make sure that that non-paying owner starts paying so that all of the owner's neighbors don't have to subsidize uh, the debt of the non-paying owner. So what do we do for collections? Right? If someone is delinquent in the payment of assessments, Fortunately, California law gives us pretty powerful remedies. We can secure the debt by recording a lien on the homeowner's property. And then once that lien is recorded, we're given options to enforce that debt, right? And enforce that lien. You could do it judicially through a lawsuit using lawyers and the court system to get a money judgment. But the unique thing in California is just like mortgage lenders, like a, you know, a mortgage lender would be able to foreclose on somebody non-judicially who didn't pay their mortgage. Homeowners associations have that same power, non-judicial foreclosure. There's no courts involved. There's no attorneys involved. There's a series of notices that are sent. And over time, if the homeowner doesn't pay, the association is in a position to actually auction the property off to the highest bidder, just like you would see a, you know, a foreclosure sale on HGTV or something to that effect. So how often does a delinquent account actually get to auction? Because I find, you know, as a manager that boards don't like the idea of actually taking somebody's property or, you know, having the association own property. It's, you know, this is a community of neighbors. It's not really one of the things that they enjoy doing and is foreclosing on somebody's home. Yeah, I get it. It's a scary thing. And a lot of times our clients think, well, wait a second, Altera is recommending that we institute foreclosure. And sometimes they might get it in their mind that, well, once we give this authorization, Within a matter of days, all of a sudden, we'll be auctioning off the homeowner's property. We're going to be selling the property, and that's just not how it works. So you know, once you institute the foreclosure process, a series of notices have to go out, and it's usually over, a, you know, if you move as quick as you possibly can, a six-month period before you'll be in a position to sell the home. If we have a, you know, let's say we have a 1,000 files in our office, what's the likelihood that we'll actually get to the foreclosure sale and conduct the sale? Very rare. Very rare. I'd say of those thousand files, maybe a handful, less than five. Um, and even in those cases, usually the homeowners find a way to pay at the end. And a lot of times that's symptomatic of just the economic climate that we're in. If the economy's strong, the real estate market's strong, and a homeowner has a bunch of equity in their property, hopefully they're not going to let that property go to sale and lose that equity for a you know a five thousand dollar or a ten thousand dollar assessment debt. So big picture, 
foreclosure. The term is scary, but it's very rare that the association actually ends up selling the home or auctioning off the home. But we do start the process in order to let the homeowner know, hey, we're serious and this needs to be resolved as soon as possible because it's better for everybody. So the way I I used to try to remember it was judicial means judge, means you're going to have to go to court, you're going to end up with a money judgment. Um, Money judgments, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, I know Altera prefers non-judicial over judicial. Why is that? Well, you know, why do we prefer non-judicial over judicial? Well, you know, our job is to, is to recover the debt as cost-effectively as possible. And once you get attorneys involved and the court system involved, you know, the fees add up quickly. It's frustrating if a homeowner owes $5,000 and because we took a judicial route and the attorney's fees involved, that $5,000 debt turns into a $10,000 debt virtually overnight, which is one of the reasons why we don't like that. If you're serious about actually getting the file resolved, Utilizing the non-judicial approach because the fees are lower and we don't have to use attorneys and we don't have to you know wait for the court's calendar, it provides a more effective way of, of doing it. The other problem with, with judicial foreclosure that we find is that let's say you're to sue the homeowner and you get a judgment against the homeowner, you can't take that judgment that the court issues you, right, Corey, and you can't deposit that in the association's bank account. No, unfortunately, that judgment is just an approval of the court for you now to take additional steps to go after that homeowner to collect on that amount. So there are various ways that you can actually collect on on that debt, but um, absent the homeowner just agreeing to voluntarily come up and pay, which uh, doesn't always happen, you may have to take additional measures which have additional costs, such as a bank levy, wage garnishment, what have you. There are these things take additional measures. Um, and additional costs that the association has to expend. So this is one of the reasons, while effective, we really recommend that non-judicial foreclosure approach to avoid having to go through this process. So now we're incurring more costs to collect on the judgment. We may or may not need to get a private investigator to to even find out what the assets are, where the person has a bank account so we can do... Um, a bank levy, where the person works so that, you know, so we can garnish wages, all of those things. It it doesn't really seem like it's saving the association or the delinquent homeowner any money in the process. It sounds like it's something that that might actually cost more to collect. Um, And the other thing that I find interesting is that it doesn't stop the debt from accruing. So now you have this delinquent homeowner who has a judgment and we're chasing down the judgment, but they still have a current assessment that needs to be paid. Are they paying the current assessment while they have this delinquent assessment lien and judgment hanging out there? I mean, that would be the goal. It's uh, not always the case and we may have to open a subsequent account and pursue that independently of the other judgment that we already have uh, under underway. Um, another issue with uh, moving forward with these um, judicial, for, uh, judicial foreclosures and having a money judgment is that if we're just attempting to collect this debt, uh, the bad actor is still remaining in there. This goes to your point, Ramona. The homeowner is still there, and there can be additional delinquencies, and we may continue to have the same issue over and over again. So that's why when we really are going through the process, the most cost-effective and time-efficient is to move forward with that non-judicial foreclosure. So, and I would imagine that there's probably a time and place for judicial. So, you know, a lot of, we're talking about a homeowner who's still in the home. um, And so we've got a judgment, but they're still in the home. They still owe current assessments. And so now we've had to create a new assessment account for those new assessments. But we could have a situation where the homeowner has abandoned the property or the bank is starting to foreclose. Would those be more appropriate for the judicial foreclosure type situation? 
So um, when does when does judicial make sense? There are situations where it makes sense, and this is one of the reasons why uh, I think Altera is is unique in the industry because we don't just do one route, right? We will file lawsuits if the circumstance you know warrants it. When does the circumstance warrant it? Well, non-judicial foreclosure is an action against the property, right? We're going to be foreclosing non-judicially on the property, just like a mortgage lender. So we're going after the property in order to pay the debt. When you have, when the homeowner no longer lives in the property, you can't really go after the property anymore. You have to go after the homeowner personally. You have to go after the person, right? In that case, that's when we would file a lawsuit to get a judgment. We'd find out where the homeowner is now, where they work, garnish their wages, levy their bank accounts, right? So in that circumstance, you know, when the homeowner is no longer living in the property or if we know the property is about to be foreclosed on by the senior lender, yeah, let's get a money judgment. But... For all the other circumstances, right, especially in the real estate market and the economic climate that we're in, non-judicial would make the most sense. And I think the simplest way of thinking about it is we're given this very, very powerful remedy of non-judicial foreclosure, just like mortgage lenders. There's a reason why if you don't pay your mortgage, the mortgage lender doesn't sue you, right? They don't go judicially, even though they have the option to do that. They go non-judicial. And why is that? Because it's faster and it's more cost effective. So that, that's usually the scenario that plays that plays out. And I'm finding that um, more and more associations are starting to look to small claims court. I think that they see it as a means of saving the association and collection costs. Let's take the attorneys out of the equation. Um, the, the civil code allows the association to go to small claims to collect. Um, managers, management companies will often um, attend on behalf of the association or with a board member. But you still just end up with a money judgment, and that money judgment has to be collected. And doesn't small claims have a limit as to the the amount of money or the number of times you can go to small claims court? That's right. That's right, Ramona. So the civil code, if it was an individual person, would allow uh, the plaintiff to collect up to $10,000 in a small claims suit. The association is unfortunately capped at just $5,000 of the amount that they'd be able to recover. And in, in addition to that... They're only allowed to have two small claims cases per year that are over the cost of $2,500. So the association is rather limited with the amount of times they can pursue small claims. And then in the end of it, we're left with kind of the same situation as if we were uh, just pursuing a money judgment in a superior court. So just big picture for the people that are listening, because I know this stuff gets a little technical and in the weeds, right? We have two, two ways to try to recover from a homeowner, right? First, we... First, we record the lien and we secure the debt, and that's what's important, right? That keeps the homeowner from refinancing the property or selling that property because now there's a cloud on title. So then what do we do to enforce that lien to get the homeowner to actually pay? We could do non-judicial foreclosure, or we can get a money judgment against them, either in superior court or in small claims court. But I think a lot of board members fail to understand that if you get that money judgment, that doesn't mean it's the end and all of a sudden the association is going to get the money. Now you just have a new piece of paper that you have to basically try and collect on. So what does that mean? So, hey, Steve, Corey, we got a small claims judgment for this homeowner for this amount. Isn't that great? Well, sure, it's great. Uh, But now we still have to do asset searches, employment searches, do wage garnishments, try to tap the homeowner's bank account. So there's more fees that are going to accrue and a longer period of time that's going to before the association actually sees dollars, right? And that's the that's the goal, right? Make the association see dollars as quickly and cost effectively as possible which is why a lot of the times I kind of scratch my head wondering, well, why would, why would we not go down non-judicial foreclosure just to make the homeowner pay in order to avoid losing their property rather than getting a new piece of paper instead of the lien that says, yeah, the homeowner is obligated to pay and now we have to do a 
different types of collection actions, right? Bank levies and wage garnishments that have their own set of you know complications and costs and and delays. So that's the that's the challenge that I have really recommending or or agreeing with clients that say, hey, we want to do all lawsuits or we want to do all small claims actions. In our experience, it's really not the best route to take, especially if you have a homeowner with equity in their property that's still living in the community. Well, Corey, um, how has Altera been handling non-judicial foreclosure in the current climate? We've been dealing with COVID since March 2020. Um, The state has created some emergency orders that have dealt with moratoriums on evictions, moratoriums on foreclosures. The federal government has had moratoriums on foreclosures. I would imagine that even after um, the vaccine and the pandemic is technically over, there's probably still going to be some economic fallout um, that that government is going to be dealing with. So what has been Altera's challenge during during this process? So just adapting to the constant change in all these moratoriums and orders by, by both the state and the federal government have been a whirlwind. But fortunately, we have a team on hand that's been able to, you know, accurately review these uh, these changes and implement them accordingly. So fortunately, even throughout this whole process, we've still been able to really be effective in collecting on these debts by still being in communication with the homeowners, but not really continuing with the foreclosure process until that that was allowed. So as it is today, there is still some chances for extensions of moratoriums for both evictions and certain types of foreclosures. So. Uh, as these things develop, we'll be able to provide more information. But until then, just speak with your collections attorney, and uh, they'll be able to guide you best on that that topic. So, so bottom line, though, just because there's a pandemic or just because there's a recession and there's some legislation and, and some emergency orders that are being imposed, that doesn't mean that the association cannot collect. There's still things that the association can do to, to collect those Absolute, delinquent assessments. Absolutely. The association definitely should definitely continue attempting to collect all their assessments. The association is a nonprofit corporation. They have many responsibilities that are contingent upon the payment of assessments. The uh, payment of insurance premiums, maintenance, paying their managers. All these things are required by, by statute and by the governing documents. And, you know, while it's, you know, it's a very sad time in in our society dealing with the pandemic, these are the obligations that they must comply with. So this is not the location where the association should be making concessions to, you know, postpone the collection of assessments. This needs to continue at this time and and should be uh, pursued all the way. So just because the pool's closed, just because the gym's closed, that doesn't mean that you don't have to pay your assessments. Uh, Because there's still, you still have a water bill, you still have an insurance bill, you still have the landscaper, right? Absolutely. Whether the gym is closed because of COVID or because uh, there's a remodel going on or whatever the variety of the reason is, it's not like it's a gym crunch fitness that you're going to pay to and that you have this membership agreement where if the gym's closed, you don't have to pay, right? A homeowners association is an entirely different thing. There's ongoing obligations that need to be paid for insurance maintenance. Remember when the pandemic first hit, we had a lot of clients asking us, right, Corey, should we, should we forbear from collecting assessments? Should we stop doing it? And the answer was emphatically no. Uh, you're not going to help anybody by sitting there and kicking this can down the road because if you allow homeowners to get away with it now and you allow their debt to balloon, that's the circumstances that increase the likelihood of filing bankruptcy and all that you know, problematic stuff that puts the association in a worse position. So we always tell our clients the best thing you can do when a homeowner falls delinquent is to follow your assessment collection policy and nip the debt in the bud, right? Don't let the debt balloon because it becomes that much more difficult to resolve. 
Another interesting thing we've seen is we were expecting the collection situation to become a lot tougher during this, but at the same time we've had this pandemic, we've had this really interesting situation where mortgage rates are essentially zero. So what are we seeing? We're seeing homeowners that are wanting to refi their properties. I think there's, you know, one homeowner I think in particular we were dealing with did three refis over the course of a year or something to that effect. But what was nice is because the association did its job in making sure that the lien was recorded and following their collection policy, they were actually able to get paid uh, because the homeowner saying, well, I want to refi the property. Well, in order for you to do that, you have to release the lien. So had the association not followed its collection policy because it was worried about COVID or wanted to put the brakes on it, uh, there's a good likelihood that the association would not have seen that money, at least not not right now. So it's a you know, it's an interesting situation where COVID yeah, prevents challenges, but it also prevents opportunities in a different way. Yeah. Um, has Halterra seen a significant um, decrease in the amount it's it's been able to collect or has it been pretty stable? It's been it's been pretty stable. I mean, testament to the work that the team's doing, you know, with with Corey's oversight. I mean, I think it's, you know, a few months prior to us recording this, I think that one month it was a record month, of course, close to a quarter million dollars of debt recovered in a single month. Um, so that, you know, the situation's there, the ability to do it is is there, but the important part is with all the thing that's changing around us, sometimes you know boards and managers need to understand what's right in front of us. We have policies that are put in place and we need to follow them. And straying away from those policies and procedures oftentimes just makes the situation worse rather than, than better. So before associations, whether it's COVID or something else, try to relax their standard policies to, to accommodate homeowners, it's always best to understand what's what the, what the recommendation is from whatever collection vendor the association utilizes, and chances are that collection vendor will say, all systems go, keep the debts low so that they're easier to resolve, rather than letting them balloon and get out of control, because that's when the association gets itself into trouble. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that you say quite often in the board leadership seminars when you're doing the board trainings is, you know, it's much easier to collect a $2,000 debt than it is to collect a $10,000 debt. It's easier for the homeowner, it's easier for the association, so just nip it in the bud and... Yep. Make it go away. Absolutely. Um, we haven't had a ton of legislation regarding assessment collection over the last few years, which has been great. Um, the legislature has been focusing on other things. There was a new bill that was passed in 2020. It doesn't go into effect until 2022. Um, it's SB 908, but it requires the licensure and oversight of debt collectors which may or may not include management companies. Now, for Altera, that means that Altera is going to have to go get a license. There's going to be a new government bureau, I would imagine, that's going to be some kind of oversight. Might be some increased liability for debt collectors. Could this affect management companies that are filing liens and doing pre-liens and so on? Absolutely, Ramona. Yeah, so uh, SB 908, the Debt Collection Licensing Act, uh, is going to be overseen by the Commissioner of Business Oversight. And like you said, it requires uh, you know a great deal more. It's a, it's a licensing that requires a lot more um, oversight. They have to go through some background checks. Uh, anyone that's going to actually be attempting to collect the debt is going to be required to hold this. So management companies that are actually you know moving forward with a lot of these practices, such as, you know, uh, recording a lien and, and, and the, the steps thereafter are going to be required to actually secure that license to be able to do that. Otherwise, you'll be facing potential liability and fines. 
so we want to make sure that uh, all associations are confirming with their collection, uh, you know, attorney or uh, management company that they are going to be licensed if they're pursuing with these these types of collections. Now, help me help me understand this a little bit more clearly because um, different management companies do collections different ways, right? So some management companies, they charge the late charge, they charge the interest in accordance with the governing documents, and then they turn it over to a collection company for the pre-lien. Other management companies will send out the pre-lien. Other management companies will take it all the way to the lien. At what point is it, quote, unquote, collections that it's going to require a license? So, so from my understanding of SB 908, it's at the time where they're moving forward with recording the lien that it's going to really trigger that requirement to have the license. Okay, so if they did their own pre-lien, that's not going to be a problem? You don't foresee that? We don't, we know, don't yet. know yet? Yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be issuing regulations. I mean, it's one of those things. We're getting questions already from you know some of the management companies that, that work with our clients. Hey, Steve, Corey, what do we have to do? What are the new guidelines? We're kind of in a holding pattern. We don't really know, but the big picture is... Prior to SB 908, there wasn't a special license that was required, whether you're a management company or a law firm or a collection company or a trustee company, to send pre-lien letters and assessment debt demands and to record liens. That's most likely going to change, uh, that we're going to have to have a special license. I know aspects of the bill says you have to display the license on every document. So um, a lot of times people wonder, why does this have to be so difficult? Why is there so much paper? Why does it take long? This is such a highly regulated statutory process, collecting this homeowner assessment debt. And, you know, it makes sense because if you think about it, someone could lose their home for as little as 1800 bucks. That's owed to the association in assessment. So there's all these different levels of regulation that we've had to deal with. And now there's going to be another layer of regulation that we have to deal with. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see what comes. But I would, if I was a betting man, I would bet that, yeah, management companies that are doing some aspect of pre-lean and lean work will likely be wrapped into the licensure requirements and have to do something in order to satisfy this new bureau and the new requirements issued by the California Commissioner of, of Consumer Debt Collection, right, or whatever the fancy new title is going to be. Today's episode is brought to you by Altera Assessment Recovery. Altera provides comprehensive attorney-supervised assessment collection services to community associations throughout California. Trust us with your collection needs. We'll get the job done, done right, and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Altera Assessment Recovery. We're the collection team you've been looking for. Well, and I would imagine that that is partly because of um, collection activity that wasn't done properly before, right? I mean, we've had a few cases. We've had dime, the Diamond case, the Mashiri case, um, and we'll go over that in a little bit, but... Um, I would imagine that the legislature feels like collection companies need to be regulated because of it's a it's a consumer rights issue. You know, you have these big bad homeowners associations and these big bad corporations that are taking the homes of the homeowner, as you said, for small debts. And so it feels like there needs to be some kind of regulation. There needs to be some assurance that it's going to be done properly and in accordance with the code. Yeah, I mean, I get the uh, I get the you know the idea behind more regulation, and these homeowners are doing it. The challenge that I have is you know with consumer debt, right? Consumer debt's different. You take out a credit card, get a car lease, a car loan. You have this credit instrument that they give you that you sign all these documents and are there all these terms and it's regulated. The homeowners association, though, what what document do you sign? You don't really sign one. You sign the grant deed to your property, and by doing that, you automatically assume the obligations to pay assessments. 
and then we have to administer that. So I understand the consumer rights analogy and the consumer debt analogy, but I think in some respect it's not really applicable to homeowners associations, or it shouldn't be. But we have seen circumstances with case law where you've had bad actors in this space, and unfortunately, you know, one one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. So we just kind of have to pick up and uh, pick up and, and deal with it. But yeah, I mean, we don't want people to be able to be in a position to lose their home because there's a you know an exploitive or a predatory collection company out there wanting to scoop up HOA properties. Just on a bigger picture, I don't know any manager, any, you know, board members that are that are listening to this podcast. I don't think that. Hey, raise your hand if you like the thought of foreclosing on somebody in your community or if you like the thought of having all this receivable reports in your board packet that you have to go through. I mean, nobody wants to deal with this. We have to deal with it. So, uh, you know, sometimes we wish it was a little bit easier to deal with and it wasn't such a complex thing because the more complexity that's added, the more fees and costs that are required to manage and comply with that complexity. And those fees and costs are ultimately borne by the delinquent homeowner. So a $2,000 debt a lot of times gets gets up there really quickly in fees and costs of stuff, not necessarily that we want to do, but we have to do because California says there's all these different hoops that you have to you have to jump through when you're sending these demands and you're processing these actions. Well, let's talk about one of those cases. Um, one of them was, was Diamond, and to my understanding, um, the essence of that was uh, an, an association or a collection company that didn't follow the collection process as outlined in the legislation to a T. And as a result, um, the court held that they had to start, the association essentially had to start all over again. Yep. From yep. square one. That's right. Yeah. So in, in that case, a Diamond versus Superior Court, uh, the court held that the association must strictly adhere to all of the statutory lien and foreclosure notice requirements or else you'd have to restart. And it, it seemed the court re- uh, find this rationality because they wanted to provide the, the homeowner, the delinquent homeowner, every possible opportunity to review, make uh, dispute the debt, potentially try and correct the debt. And if you fail to you know, follow what the legislature has laid out for them, they're going to have to go back and, and start from the beginning. Um, you know, this is a, a great goal for the, the legislature and the courts who want to make sure the homeowner has the ability to actually pay these debts so they don't you know, have their property foreclosed upon. You know, just the one downside is now a lot of these costs can be passed back onto the association, like Steve mentioned earlier. Yeah, so it's a strict compliance standard. So, you know, there's two in the legal field, right? There's different standards that we have to meet when we're complying with something, right? There's substantial compliance, which means, yeah, we got most of it right, right? And there's strict compliance, which means we got everything right. Every T was crossed perfectly. Every I was dotted perfectly. And the Diamond case said strict compliance is required. So the challenging thing for associations, especially those that aren't working directly with professional collection companies and firms, is that they might do some of the initial process. They might say, hey, Corey, we did this pre-lean. And we did this lien. Can you guys now enforce the lien and start a foreclosure action? Well, we now looking at the pre-lien and the lien. If there's anything off, and keep in mind, there's so many things that have to be in there, and the dates, and the timing, and the timelines for demand, and how all these things are, you know, are read and interpreted by the courts via the statute. If there's anything wrong, what do we have to do? We we can't go ahead and enforce that lien. So now we have to do corrective work, which is a difficult thing. What does corrective work mean? We have to redo the pre-lien or we have to redo the lien and we have to start back over. So what's the translation or the experience for the homeowners association? Sorry guys, more delay and we're gonna have to spend more money. And by the way, the money that you've already spent, we can't recover because that work was was defective. That's the strict compliance standard and that's the result, which is, you know, a lot of times it's a it's a challenge for us, especially if we're working with a new community. They give us all these files and say, go ahead and we say, hey, sorry, we wanna work with you, but 
in order for us to do what you want us to do, we have to go back to square one on these files that you've given us and start the process all over again. Um, you know, so sometimes it's a difficult conversation to have, but we do it for the benefit of, of not just us, but for the association. Because if we get sued, right, if there was an FDCPA claim brought against the association, that's not, that's not good for anybody, which is another reason why it's so important, especially for management companies that are doing some of this initial work. Whatever collection company that you're going to be pitching this stuff to to enforce the liens, make sure that they sign off on on the work that you're doing initially so that you don't be put in the unfortunate position of having to explain to the client, hey, we spent a bunch of money already and we're going to have to spend more uh, before we can start recovering it from you. What is FDCPA? The Federal Debt Collection Practices Act, right, which regulates Mm -hmm. consumer debt on a national standard, right? So it's the federal set of statutes that dictate how consumer debts are collected, and it's really meant for people trying to, you know, chase credit card debt. Right, so it has things like you can't call homeowners in the middle of the night. You can't call them at their place of the employment. You can't threaten them. Nothing that really applies to our situation, but there is stuff that applies to our situation. When deadlines are given, right? How clear things have to be. You know, the type of disclosures and the even the size, point of font, right? That needs to be included. I mean, that's how detailed it is, which is why sometimes it's just so frustrating when more regulation gets added. At this point, like, hey, we just want to send the homeowner a simple collection letter. But because of all these regulations, that letter that should take 20 minutes now takes an hour and a half and spans five pages because of all the stuff we have to do to comply with the FTCPA. But that's the landscape and we have to run with it. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, for, for most of us that that swim in this, um, we think of Davis-Sterling Act. We think of California. We're thinking about our CCNRs. We're thinking about our collection policies. We know it's $1,800 or 12 months before we can foreclose. We, we kind of forget that there's this federal piece of legislation that's hanging out there that we also need to comply with. And there were a couple of cases within the last few years that really impacted how we do collections here in California. One of those was Mashiri, and that had to do with the pre-lien notice, the, the deadline. So I know um, a lot of our collection policies and a lot of our CCNR said, you know, it was after 15 days, you do the late charge, 30 days, you do the interest. At 45 days, you do the pre-lien, 60 days, you do the lien. Mm-hmm. This Mashiri case kind of extended that out a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it did, because the Mashiri, it's FDCPA. It says the homeowner has to be given 30 days, an opportunity, a 30-day opportunity to dispute the validity of the debt. So when we have a 30-day pre-lien timeline, we used to have in our pre-lien letters and management companies the same thing. The letter would go out on the first of the month and say, if we don't receive your payment by the 31st of the month, right, 30-day time frame, we're going to take this. But in the Mashiri case, the court said, well, no, wait a second. They have to have 30 days to dispute it, and they might not see the letter for a few days because it transmits via the mail, right? And I might be, you know, kind of obfuscating the facts a little bit, but this is the substance of it. So the long and the short of it is even though our state statute says it's a 30-day period, the Mashiri applying the FDCPA basically required us to push it out to a 45-day period in order to make sure that we comply with FDCPA, not necessarily California. So that's one example, and it's a great one, of how the FDCPA comes in. And if there's a case that's litigated, we so it's always been 30 days. And now, Steve, Corey, what do you say? You're saying we have to change our pre-lien letters to 45 days? Why? Well, we can explain it to you with this complicated set of facts and machinery, or we can just tell you that's what the law essentially is now. And it's better for everybody if we just switch to this because nobody wants to get sued. Exactly. And then we had Highland Greens, and I think that was just within the last year or so. And that had to do with 
the continuing liens. So in California, and um, we've talked about this a couple of times, before we can initiate foreclosure, the debt has to grow to $1,800, and that's assessment debt. That's not the, the collection costs and late charges and so on. Right. Um, or it has to reach 12 months, whichever comes first. Highland Greens kind of shook that up, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a federal bankruptcy case, and uh, in essence, the case held that the associations that were putting continuing lien language within those uh, notice of delinquent assessment liens, those that term, which generally would incorporate all additional delinquent assessments that came due after the date of recording, that language was invalid. So essentially, all those liens that had that continuing lien language were now invalid, and the association would need to do a corrective lien and record it. And then any time thereafter, if there are additional delinquencies, they would need to record a new lien after the fact to secure those uh, additionally delinquent debts. Okay, so early on when we were talking about this and you were kind of giving us the, the overview of collections in general, you mentioned that you need to file a lien in order to secure the debt. But now the FDCPA says that that lien doesn't continue. So do I have to re-record the lien? So so yes, uh, it's not that every month, every month that an assessment comes due and the homeowner is delinquent, we're recommending that you record a new lien to secure that debt. Instead, it's basically, uh, we we conduct a case-by-case analysis depending on kind of the amount of the assessments. For example, say the assessment amount per month was $50 a month. We wouldn't recommend that every month the the association record a new lien to secure that $50. Instead, we would probably push that $50 per month assessment and record after a year. Now that we have the, you know a larger amount that's that's accrued, uh, it kind of hits that foreclosure threshold. That would be an appropriate time to record it. Uh, in contrast, say for example the assessments are you know they're they're on the higher end. They're seven hundred fifty dollars a month. In that situation, we would recommend you know moving up how frequently we record that uh, additional assessment. And it, so for that, that could be anywhere between three and six months, just depending on the amount of what that additional delinquency is. Okay. Cause that's what I was going to ask you is if we have to keep recording liens, how do we ever get to the 1800 or the 12 yeah. months? But that what you're, that's what you're saying is you're going to evaluate each file. Yeah, we wouldn't record liens to secure a hundred dollars. So for the people that are listening, trying to simplify this stuff, because I know it's, it sounds a little hairy. Uh, before this Highland Greens case, it was kind of, and it made sense. Hey, Steve, we recorded a lien against this homeowner in 2015, and at the time they owed 1500 bucks. And we used to enjoy a circumstance where we didn't have to record a new lien in 2016 or 2017 because the existing lien that was on the property would continue. So the homeowner that owed 1500 bucks in 2015, as they continued to not pay assessments, that lien would now secure the additional debt that they owed. So fast forward to 2021, the debt secured by that same lien in 2015 at the time might have been 1500 bucks. Now it might be $5,000. Highland Green said in interpreting California statutes doesn't allow for continuing liens. So for example, if that homeowner now today in 2021 said, hey, I'm selling my property, you need to release the lien, what would that homeowner have to pay? $1,500 plus the collection fee. They wouldn't have to pay all the debt that they have accrued since that lien was recorded up to up to today's date, which has made a challenge for us, which is why those associations that have old liens on, you know, on properties, there's probably a significant amount of debt that's not secured anymore because that lien that was recorded in the past has no longer continued to wrap in new debt that the homeowner accrues. So you're right. I mean, in associations with sizable monthly assessments, 
if you're sitting there and you don't record liens at periodic intervals, you face a situation where you could actually be out that money because the homeowner could 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 move out of the property and release the lien and only pay the association, you know, a small percentage of what the association is actually owed because the association didn't take the steps to secure the newer debt through subsequent liens. I think that's good information for boards to know as well because you know, you mentioned escrows and, and getting that payoff demand before escrow can close. And typically, you know, escrow is contacting management days before the escrow is supposed to close. That's the last thing that they do is contact management to get the cert completed, to get the payment demand and so on. It's, so it's really going to be incumbent upon board members to kind of notify management and notify the collection company. Hey, I saw a for sale sign go up on this home. Let's take a look at the lien. Where you know, do we need Where's to re-record the lien? The yeah. lien? yeah, is everything secured? And it's a you know another point, important point. Sometimes we'll have clients say, "Yeah, we understand that the lien is old, and technically it's not secured by that." But when you submit the escrow demand saying how much the association is owed, we know what the lien we owed fifteen hundred bucks on that old lien. But now the homeowner owes five thousand dollars because of the new assessment. Just say they're owed five thousand dollars. You know, and we'll you know, and there's a likelihood that we'll get paid because they want this thing to close. What they don't realize, though, is that under the FDCPA and the California version of the FDCPA, if we were to include that statement in a letter, what we're doing is we're, quote, misrepresenting the nature of the debt, which is a violation, which is massive exposure for a consumer rights attorneys to come after. So even though we want to help, yeah, we understand that we're owed the money and you think it might be simple enough for us to type in the letter, say we're owed this money on the lien. If we do that, that in itself is a statutory violation that subjects everybody to penalties, and we can't do that. We just can't do that, So, which is important to understand. Again, all of this stuff is big picture. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of regulation that's involved, and sometimes you might think common sense. So shouldn't this be a lot easier? Yeah, I guess it should, but unfortunately it isn't. And there's a lot of things that we have to do to comply because we are not going to let our clients get sued. We certainly don't want to get sued. Uh, doing this type of work. Well, I think, you know, from a manager standpoint, you know, the one thing that I used to advise my boards and, and the one thing that I always came back to was secure the debt. If you do nothing else, secure the debt, get the lien filed, right? You may not get to foreclosure. Um, you may decide that you don't want to go to court and get a money judgment. You might just want to let that lien sit there until that till the homeowner sells the property. But at least the debt is secured and it's being reviewed on a regular basis, so, especially because of Highlands. And so we might have to record additional liens, but we're securing that debt. How does Highland Greens affect partial payments? Because we also had... Again, this is going to get more complicated. We also had Huntington Continental a few years ago that affected partial payments and how those partial payments had to be applied. Right. So in the past, you know, the industry standard was not to accept the partial payments. However, with that Huntington Continental v. Minor case, uh, the court basically held that the association is obligated to, you know, to accept those partial payments. And then the question is, okay, what if uh, this homeowner has been delinquent six months and his uh, delinquency is, uh, you know, let's say $2,000, which is above the threshold of $1,800 to foreclose. Now he makes a payment of $500, and it's now underneath that threshold. What is the actual implication of that? Well, now we're not going to be able to continue with the, the foreclosure process at that time. The lien remains still valid because he has not, you know, satisfied the lien. However, we can't continue with that foreclosure process until we, one, re-hit that $1,800 threshold, 
or two, you know, the, there's been a delinquency of over 12 months. So this Huntington, uh, Huntington case does kind of allow the homeowners to potentially game the system a little bit, you know, make partial payments just to kind of draw it out, um, you know, but we should really continue to, you know, attempt to collect the debt to, you know, to the extent possible to make sure the association is made as whole as possible. And my understanding is, is that Huntington Continental specified that those partial payments go to assessments first. So, you know, it used to be that, you know, Davis Sterling says that the delinquent owner is responsible for the delinquent assessment, the late charges, interest, attorney's fees, and the costs, which reasonable attorney's fees, right, and the, and the costs of collection. But Huntington Continental said, well, but the homeowner can make those partial payments and have those apply to assessments only. Yes. So if a homeowner really wanted to game the system, they could stay below the 1800 Never pay any of those collection fees, never pay any of those attorney's costs that never get foreclosed upon. Is that correct? Yeah. So big, big picture. This was the concern. We have an $1,800 limit before we can institute foreclosure. So if a homeowner has a $2,500 debt and they say, here you go, here's an $800 payment, which brings me just below the threshold, we would reject it, right? Me, you know, attorneys and collection companies that operated in the collection space before the case because we were worried about the homeowner doing this, just submitting a series of partial payments in order to avoid foreclosure while never really satisfying the debt and putting the association in the position of actually having to incur fees to collect more fees that it's already incurred. That was the argument. And the court said, well, yeah, I guess that's the argument, but tough cookies. And I think the court actually looked at that as well in the Highland Greens case. So what do we do in those circumstances? And they're rare. We don't see this a ton. They're rare. If you have a homeowner that's doing that, that's gaming the system, it's pretty easy. That might be a circumstance, right, Corey, where we say, let's get this in a superior court in front of a judge and get a money judgment and paint the whole picture of what Bob, the debtor here, is doing by burning the association and playing this game. And let's get a money judgment and collect them that way, you know, rather than having to go through this exercise and having the association bleed money and can continue to incur fees. Let's get a judgment, and then this way we'll just start tapping bank accounts or garnishing wages. My favorite thing is a till tap. Remember a few years ago we did that. It was a restaurant homeowner where uh, we got a judgment against them, and the till tap is where the sheriff goes up to the cash register and just sits there all day, and anytime there's money deposited in the cash register, he takes some of it right in order to satisfy the debt. And it was funny. I think it was the first day after the sheriff was there, the homeowner said, all right, fine, I can't have a sheriff in here in my restaurant. Everybody's saying, what's going on? Um, so there are remedies that there are available, and yeah, there's a potential for a homeowner to gain the system. But in that circumstance, that's why we might use a different remedy and say, let's go to court, let's get a judgment, start collecting it that way, because this is going to be a losing exercise with this homeowner who's just, you know, gaming the system. Absolutely. I just, I just think that it's something that's kind of important for associations and for board members to understand, because I think, again, as a manager, I would often find that my board members were frustrated. Why is this taking so long? Why is this costing so much money? What is the collection company doing? I'm not seeing anything on the status reports. I'm not seeing any movement. When is this homeowner going to pay? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a complicated process that managers, frankly, don't understand. And they don't want to invite the attorney to the board meeting because, no offense, you guys talk a lot. And you, you make those meetings go long. None taken. So, you know, it's 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 frustrating. It's it's. These homeowners owe tens of thousands of dollars in many cases, and it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, complaining about status reports and lack of actions, those would never be complaints about Altera, though, right, Corey? Because, no, we, we operate at a much faster pace than, than, than that. But, no, we, I mean, we get it what the frustration is. I, I mean, I was speaking with a new client. This was just last week. 
And it was funny because I remember during, you know, Altera's initial stages when we were having conversations with people and you can get in the technicalities and this is what we do and this is what our software does and I understand your approach might not work and this is how we can do things and there's all these different approaches. Big picture, why is somebody in collections, right, for the association? It's in the minority of situations where the homeowner can't actually pay. The majority of the situations is the homeowner just won't pay because they are not giving the association's assessment debt the seriousness and the priority it deserves. So the homeowner comes to a meeting with the board to request the payment plan, leaves the meeting, gets the payment plan, then gets in their brand new Beamer that they just leased, right? Or calls their spouse on their $1,500 iPhone, right? They have the money to pay, they're just not taking the association seriously. So all the technicalities that are involved, the biggest thing to do is to change the narrative that these homeowners have, that the association isn't serious and can't do anything to them. So for us, what we enjoy is getting these files over where the debt's relatively small, working with the association and say, hey, when we're requesting authorization, we want to move as quickly as possible in order for the homeowner to understand, no, this is serious and I need to change my approach here because the association is actually going to take my home or they're going to sue me. They're not going to stop. So making the homeowner realize, no, this is a serious obligation that I have to take care of. Maybe I have to prioritize my other discretionary expenses uh, differently. I think that's kind of the... The biggest picture. So for the associations that are frustrated, oh, it's taking too long. A lot of times it's because it could be moving faster if the association just green lights everything and say, yep, go right ahead. Start foreclosure the second you can do it and let the homeowners know in the community the association is serious and this is a debt that you need to pay. And if not, you're going to incur a lot of collection fees and late charges virtually immediately. Um, and it's going to be a problematic situation for you. So collections can be expensive can be expensive for the homeowner, can be expensive for the association. For a long time, we had collection firms that were allowing for contingency or no-cost collections. And basically what they were saying was the, the statute states and the governing documents state that the assessments, the late charges, the costs of collection, the attorney's fees is a debt upon the homeowner. So we're just going to bill the homeowner directly. Then there was some... What was it? It was a class action suit. Yeah, there are a couple bankruptcy court cases. You're right. The idea of contingency collections. Um, so yeah, I remember before we started Altera, we had you know there was there was people that are operating in the space that were saying, hey, there's no risk, there's no cost. Send us the collection file. We'll never send you the association a bill. You never have to pay us anything. We'll recover the home the money directly from the homeowner. So as we're charging fees, we're only going to add them to the homeowner's account, and then when the homeowner pays from that payment, we'll take what's owed to us. Right? And the rest will send to the association. There's no risk to you, association. You're not going to be out any money. Like what you hear so far? Make sure to subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast at TinleyLaw.com and never miss an episode. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. And we never thought that that was legal. And a bankruptcy court case that came out a few years later affirmed our position because the idea behind it is the debt, the attorney's fees and collection costs become a debt of the homeowner when they're incurred by the association. That means the association has to be liable for them. It has to actually pay those fees. And what's the idea behind that? The legislature wants the association to know how much the collection company or collection firm is charging the homeowner. If the collection firm never invoices the association, they're never going to know. And that's what happened in the, in the class action case. There's a collection company that was charging relatively egregious you know, prices on the homeowner, $800 for a lien, you know, $1,000 for this. The association never saw a bill. Right? It was never motivated to see a bill. So the homeowners were just getting gouged. 
So the legislature, that's not what they wanted. So these bankruptcy court cases say, no, this idea of contingency collections, it doesn't work. In order for the association to say the homeowner owes this amount in attorney's fees, that's because that amount in attorney's fees is what's necessary to reimburse the association for the attorney's fees it's had to pay. So that's why we've never operated under contingency basis. And that, you know, I think it's actually good, good public policy. It's good, it's good statutory policy in order to do that. So we don't operate that way. And I, don't, I, I think it's rare that you see any collection companies that are still doing that. In fact, there's been a couple circumstances where these homeowners have hired these, uh, you know, these, these bottom of the barrel plaintiff's attorneys that send us this demand that says, oh, the collection fees uh, are not responsible because the associations never incurred them. You guys are operating on a contingency. And it's a very easy thing to say, no, here are the invoices that we've sent to the association that the association has paid. What else do you want to talk about? Oh, by the way, by virtue of this communication, homeowner's attorney, we've now had to increase the debt on your client because we're having to have this conversation with you. So, uh, you know, good job. Uh, just tell your client to pay this debt and we can move on and, um, and quit messing with it. Mm-hmm. And those debt, it's, it's still a cost of the homeowner. The homeowner is still responsible to pay the association back yes, at the absolutely. end of the day. At the end of the, exactly. The association will be reimbursed. But in order for that to happen, legally, the association has to incur the fees. The association can't say, yeah, Corey, go ahead, go after this person, charge them whatever you want, never send us a bill, and let us know what you collect. It just doesn't work that way. And I think it's for good reason it doesn't work that way. That's good. Can we talk about bankruptcy for a little bit? Because I think that's kind of a big, bad, scary in, in many circumstances for many associations and for many managers. It, it kind of feels like when somebody files bankruptcy, that's it. You know, we're going to have to write this off. We're never going to collect this debt. But that's not really the case, is it? Absolutely not. So this is one of the most common questions I get from management companies. Uh, it's pretty much exactly that. You know, they, they get noticed that there's a bankruptcy filing and they basically say, oh, is this something we need to write off? So this, this kind of goes back to a point you made earlier, Ramona, is make sure you secure the debt through a lien. Record the lien. If the association records the lien, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot more options for them to take. So, for example, um, say the homeowner has uh, filed bankruptcy. They currently are owing $3,000 uh, secured by a lien. Now what, what happens is the association can file what's called a proof of claim where the association makes a claim to the bankruptcy court stating the amount that's currently owed and secured by this lien. And throughout the, the bankruptcy plan, uh, the association can be uh, receiving disbursements from the bankruptcy trustee, which is paying towards the assessments. Even though that there may be a discharge, uh, that discharge of the bankruptcy is only discharging them in a personal capacity. So if there is a lien on the property, the association would still have the ability to foreclose on the actual physical location of the property because that was not discharged in the bankruptcy. So they can still collect there. In the alternative, if the association does not secure the lien, while during bankruptcy they can still submit a proof of claim for the unsecured amount, if that's discharged, the association is kind of left without having the ability to move forward with foreclosure because it wasn't secured by the lien before uh, the bankruptcy uh, petition was filed. So again, moral of the story is... Secure the debt with a lien. So what is is Corey saying, right? So if if a homeowner files bankruptcy and there's a debt owed to the association, the the benefit of having that debt secured by the lien is now the association is, quote, a secured creditor. Correct. And a secured creditor is given priority in the bankruptcy court over an unsecured creditor. The association would be an unsecured creditor if it says, hey, we're owed 5,000, but we haven't recorded the lien yet. 
You're now an unsecured creditor, so you're given less priority as part of any you know payoff plan, right, or any payment arrangement that's that's executed and structured by the by the trustee. That's problem number one. Exactly. Problem number two: if the association is unsecured, right, then what, what time? A lot of times we try to phrase it to the client is this: the homeowner's debt may be discharged in bankruptcies. What does that mean? The bankruptcy court saying the homeowner owes five thousand dollars personally. We are hereby discharging the debt. The homeowner no longer owes the five thousand dollars, so they've discharged the debt, but the lien does not get discharged in bankruptcy. The lien continues to stay on the property. So even though the homeowner is no longer personally obligated to pay that $5,000 because the debt's been discharged, that lien still remains on the property and the association can still attach the property. So homeowner, we understand that the $5,000 debt was discharged in bankruptcy. That's fine, but our lien wasn't. So we're still gonna foreclose on our lien unless somebody, right? Somebody, whether it's you or some you know, benefactor, comes in and pays the money because we're attaching the property now. We're not going after you personally. So in both of those scenarios, it kind of hammers home the point that we've been talking about the entire time. Secure the debt. It gives the association so much more leverage and much more options, irrespective of, of whether a, a bankruptcy is filed. And the association just has to wait until the bankruptcy is discharged. So collection efforts, we monitor it, but collection efforts basically cease until the bankruptcy court goes through its process. Yes. Yeah. The bankruptcy issues, what's called an automatic stay, which means all the creditors that are chasing this homeowner stop, stop sending collection letters until this thing is worked out. Um, so that stay is imposed. And then once the bankruptcy is, you know, is wrapped up, whether it's a dismissal or a discharge, we can then resume assessment collection activities, depending on what the outcome of the, of the bankruptcy is. And another important point too, if a homeowner files bankruptcy, right, the date that they filed, it's called the petition date, right? So all of the debt that the homeowner owes that's subject to the bankruptcy is the debt that accrued at the time of the, of, the, of the petition date. What it doesn't include is the ongoing monthly assessments that are continuing to accrue and unpaid by the homeowner as the bankruptcy is pending. That's the post-petition debt. That debt still remains viable and can be collected from the homeowner once the bankruptcy case resolves, right? Then we can go after the post-petition debt regardless of what happened with the debt that the homeowner owed at the time they filed. Exactly. Well, and I think another um, thing that's important to note is that bankruptcy filings are not always done correctly. And I've seen many filings where they included the mortgage, but they didn't include the association because it's just the little homeowners association. They're not serious. And so the association actually doesn't get looped into the bankruptcy to begin with. So needs to go to the collection attorney to take a look at, Absolutely. to review, and provide a recommendation. Yep, and have, have the uh, collection uh, attorney or a collection company, they'll, they'll be able to do that case-by-case analysis to determine what would be the best case scenario, best action to take in any individual bankruptcy file. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that issue also violating the automatic stay when a homeowner files a petition and we have to stop legally sending you know these collection demands. These things have penalties if they're violated, which is one of the reasons why, you know, for Altera, I know it, various stages throughout the process is before we do something, we check bankruptcy status, right? The homeowner might not have filed bankruptcy a month and a half ago, but if, but if they filed it a week ago and we didn't check and sent this homeowner a letter, technically that's a violation of the stay, which subjects us and subjects the association to penalties. So it's another reason, you know, like <laughs> another layer of complexity that's added to this, which makes us say, hey, yeah, we have to cross the D's, dot the I's, and not only that, look in the system to see other T's and other D's. There's, there's a big picture uh, of things, and it's a very complicated process. So um, sometimes that's why board members might think, why does it take so long? Why is it so complicated? We wish it weren't the case. But all this complexity and the things that go in, it's all there to comply with the law so that we don't get sued and have a claim you know, put on our insurance carrier and have a big payout to this 
to this homeowner who is getting away scot-free with not paying the association any money. Well, and you mentioned that, you know, when we get the file initially, um, we do a little bit of research and one of the, that part of that research is to check for bankruptcy filings. We check title. Um, and it just came to me that, you know, we're, we're in South Orange County. We have another office in Carlsbad. We're very close to Camp Pendleton. Um, and so I know sometimes part of our research is, is this individual active military, right? Can you guys talk about why why we ask that question of the association or the manager? So, so this would be under the SCRA, this... Soldiers and Sailors Relief Act. Correct, yeah. Holy so, smoke. <laughs> so so uh, under the SCRA, uh, we're obligated to determine um, if the, the delinquent homeowner is an active military because the legislature does not want us attempting to collect debts for people who are actively deployed and you know, say they're in another country. Uh, you know, serving for our country, uh, we don't want to be, you know, attempting to collect those debts at the time where they're deployed, where they don't really have the ability to really address the issues or to try and, you know, correct or make payments on this without giving them the proper notice. So that's always one of the main things that we check first. And also, again, at certain stages, and if we're, uh, you know, pursuing judgment, we check again at that stage just to make sure uh, that they haven't been deployed at that stage. Yeah, it's not one of those things that has a huge impact, um, but, it, you know, that question comes up every so often is, you know, why, why do they want to know if there's active military? I don't know if he's active military. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, and, but there's yeah. a reason for that, because if, if we have a soldier who is off in Afghanistan fighting for our country, we probably shouldn't be foreclosing on their property, Absolutely. right? <laughs> and fortunately, you know, there's a great service uh, provided by the SCRA that we can actually check that uh, rel- you know relatively easy but it is absolutely another step that we should always be taking just to make sure that we're not violating anything there okay well um i know you Corey, you just wrote a blog article on um ab 1885 it was another new piece of legislation um i think it was the homestead exemption again it's another piece of legislation that i don't think it affects us too much, but I know that you've been getting some questions from the management companies on it. Definitely. So, so what this this uh, AB 1885 does is it makes two important changes, and it'll take effect, or it took effect on January 1st of this year. Uh, the first thing is it makes homestead exemption the greater of uh, three hundred thousand dollars, or the countywide median price. Um, which should not exceed $600,000. So this is a stark increase from what the, the previous homestead exemption was. And this makes sense, you know, at the time that the original homestead exemptions were created, the amount of all the properties were substantially lower. Now with inflation, all the property values have, you know, been in, on the increase. So the legislature wanted to provide some mechanism that individuals that, you know, have a certain amount of equity in the property we're able to maintain some essence of having somewhere to live. So that's kind of the process there. And then the second thing that this uh, bill does is that it automatically adjusts for inflation starting January 1st of 2022 to account for that. So there's there's not gonna be the requirement to have this kind of additional cleanup language after we see additional layers of inflation, or you know, if we do hit a recession, if the property values decrease, it will be adjusted that way as well. And I've been receiving questions from a lot of managers is, what is this going to do to the association? And from, from my experience throughout, you know, working with Altera, I haven't seen any kind of homestead exemption really even make any impact. Um, it, it's going to probably come into effect the most uh, during some sort of bankruptcy when, you know, it, it, it's liquidating all assets and what they're trying to do is relinquish the property through some kind of sale. This is where that the, the debtor might uh, declare homestead exemption and, you know, try and protect that asset. 
So even if, if we do arrive at that situation, there are still many other alternatives that the association has to collect on the debt. So it's really just going to be a case-by-case analysis and just want to touch base with your attorney to discuss those on an individual basis. Just talking about this homestead exemption bankruptcy, what, when is it more likely that a homeowner is going to try to use that exemption or use bankruptcy as a mean of avoiding the debt? It's when the debt has grown to a level that's just unpalatable for the homeowner and they don't have any other options, Right. which is kind of another big picture. All of this stuff can become a problem, but usually only when the association sits on a file and doesn't enforce it, which is kind of a $2,000 or $3,000 debt, nip it in the butt, and then you will not have homeowners filing bankruptcy or seeking homestead exemptions uh, to try to avoid the debt. You know, We have a homeowner that has $20,000 in debt or $30,000 in debt, then they're going to be more likely to hire an attorney and try to maybe file bankruptcy, try to find what they can do to evade the debt versus something that's relatively small. So a lot of these things, these challenges can be avoided by the association following its collection policy as quickly as it possibly can and letting the homeowners know, if you fall delinquent, these are the consequences and you can expect it to happen should you do it again. Absolutely. Well, I mean, let's let's talk about that for a minute um, because I've been in those board meetings and especially right now, again, we're dealing with um, a pandemic. We're not in an economic recession, but that's the concern right now. And so, you know, you're sitting in a board meeting and you're talking to the board about a delinquent homeowner and whether or not um, the board is going to approve the filing of the lien and invariably, the question comes up, well, have you talked to them? Do you know what's going on? Is there a medical issue? Have they lost their job? And again, you know, these are volunteer board members. These are their neighbors. Um, collecting assessments is an unsavory thing. Mm-hmm. But they also have a fiduciary duty in their role as directors to collect these assessments. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as, as neighbors, right, people live in the community, oh, that person, you know, falling on a hard time, what could I do to help them? But when you're a board member and you're a fiduciary of a corporation, there's a reason why we don't call homers and do these types of things. This is a debt. There's no other revenue stream. We're not for profit. We're not, you know, AT&T and just say, yeah, we can write this one off because we're making enough money somewhere else. We need this money to pay. So if the homeowner is truly in a situation where they they can't pay, we might be able to work with them through a payment plan, you know, over the course of six months or a year. I never like seeing these, you know five or ten year payment plans I think that's just just ridiculous it's problematic for a variety of reasons but the, you know the as much as neighbors we want to help out a homeowners association as an entity is not a charitable organization that's the one to do that if the homeowner needs to take out a second mortgage or go find another loan or a business loan in order to do that those are the proper entities to set the homeowner up to provide that financial relief a homeowners association run by a volunteer group of homeowners is not is not the entity to do that so yeah, talk to the homeowner, do this, try to work something out, understand how that all works in theory, but in experience and in practice, it's not a good idea. We are here to follow policies. That's what the legislature wants us to do. We have a collection policy. We follow it. We can work with homeowners who want to get into a reasonable payment plan, but after that, there's really nothing else that the association should be doing to try to, to, try to bend. And honestly, in, in practice, I find that the homeowners are more willing to, to respond once they get that first letter from the collection company, you know, so once we hit that 60 day mark, um, so they're, they're two months behind or three months behind, it's easier for them to enter into a payment plan. And they seem to be a little bit more willing to recognize that, oh my goodness, this is the homeowners association has contacted an attorney. I actually have to pay my assessments. Yeah. It's not only that. So when we institute foreclosure, what's the first action? The board resolves, right? The board votes to institute foreclosure and notice of that decision that the board's made that decision has to be served on the homeowner by a process server. 
So a homeowner might look at this, oh, what's this mail? This is more mail from the association, the management company. I don't need to pay attention to this. What's this lien thing? I don't know. I want to put my head in the sand. It's no big deal. But then all of a sudden, knock, knock, and there's a process server at the door with a legal document. Holy, I have to pay attention to this. So a lot of times we tell our clients, well, we don't want to foreclose. I understand you don't want to foreclose. It's unlikely, very unlikely that we're ever going to have to sell or auction the property off. But by you making this decision to start the process, that allows us to send a process server to the homeowner's door. And at that point, the homeowner will be like, oh, okay, wait a second. All right, what do I have to do here to, to get this under control? Because this is serious. Yeah, absolutely. I find that you know a, a very high percentage of all you know initial communications that are, are sent out either through the process server or you know with our letterhead, you know, almost an immediate response is received from the homeowner trying to get something worked out so they can uh, you know satisfy the debt and get this uh, behind them. Yep. So if I were going to distill it down, number one, follow the collection policy, right? It's in your governing documents, the the collection policy that you're sending out with your annual policy statement. Follow it. Follow it to a T. Secure the debt with a lien. Definitely. And then seek seek legal counsel because this is this is the board's fiduciary duty to collect the debt. They're they're required to do that under their governing documents. They're required to do that by statute. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you might be working with a collection lawyer or a collection company. I mean, it doesn't have necessarily be legal counsel, but the important point is if after you've recorded the lien, the homeowner is still ignoring you, right? If that didn't get the homeowner's attention, you have to get the homeowner's attention. And the way you're going to get their attention is by bringing in, uh, you know, the sheriff, right, to to knock on the door, so to speak, or tell the homeowner, no, this is serious. This is something that, this isn't just a a violation for, you know, dog poop that was was left in the park area or something to that effect. This could actually affect your ownership of your home. Um, So, yeah, nip the dead in the bud. And even though, oh my gosh, we're going to incur, you know, $700 in in attorney's fees or collection fees when the debt's already so small, yeah, it might not make sense, but in the long run, it's better for the homeowner because if you continue to let this sit and fester and build up late fees and collection costs and all this other thing, at the end, you're going to be sitting there fighting over the amount of money rather than just changing the perspective the homeowner has as to the seriousness of paying off the uh, off the association. They can find other ways to cut back, maybe cancel a streaming subscription or something. There's other ways they can find the money. They just have to take the association seriously. And a lot of times associations that have homeowners that aren't taking them seriously, it's because they're reluctant to turn the file over to pros that allow them to then go and send a process server out and send, you know, the, you know, the threatening letters that we do. Well, you know, you have associations that have limited budgets and you have boards that don't want to raise assessments. And with all respect to, you know, my colleagues here, collections is not inexpensive, Yeah. you know, and, and if the homeowner is ignoring all the notices, it starts to add up. And so, associations try to hang on to it for as long as they can and try to work with the homeowner as much as they can before they begrudgingly turn it over. Um, But as you succinctly said, it's easier to pay $750 than it is to pay $5,000. So it's going to be so much easier for the homeowner. I mean, if, if we're trying to be neighborly and we're trying to think about community, let's flip the script and let's really think about, okay, it's going to be easier for my neighbor, for my homeowner to pay the smaller debt. Yeah, and easier for the for the community. I remember one you know client we still work with uh, early on Altera. They had something like eighty percent of their association's members not paying assessments. They actually contacted us because they wanted help to have the association go through bankruptcy and have because they just didn't have anybody paying assessments because nobody was taking it seriously. And I remember one of the first files that we had actually got in a position to schedule the notice of sale, to actually schedule a day when we're going to conduct the sale. And they said, this property's underwater. We're never going to take it. I said, we can cancel the sale up to a second before the sale opens. But do me a favor. If we take this step, it allows us to post notice of the sale on the homeowner's door. And why do I want that? I wanted that because I wanted to see everybody in the community 
and have them talking about, oh my gosh, the association's actually going to auction off someone's home. And I guess I said, if we do that, my guess is that it's going to have a chilling effect. And all of a sudden, it's going to change the perception of everybody in the community as to how serious this is. And fortunately, it proved, proved to be right. Fast forward a few years later, that association actually ended up being able to reduce its assessments because now everybody everybody was paying. But that gives you an understanding of, well, yeah, we don't want to do it and the money that's there. The best thing you can do for the homeowners in your community that aren't paying assessments, especially if you have a lot of delinquencies, is to let them know it's a serious thing and there are really big consequences. And once that narrative changes... In our experience, the association sees less and less collection problems because homeowners say, oh, don't mess with the association. They're going to charge you these fees and you could lose your home. Pay this off. Find somebody else to not pay. Well, and, you know, and keep in mind that while you're trying to be nice to the delinquent homeowner and, and you're trying to empathize with whatever their situation might be, the remaining owners are now having to pick up the the deficit and so they're having to pay the increased assessments or yeah. special assessments and so that creates animosity in the, in the neighborhood yeah you don't want everybody to subsidize you know homeowners that aren't paying but even beyond that steve we'd really like to get our pool operational we can't afford a pool pump because nobody's paying their assessments right mm-hmm. so you're supposed to have all these beautiful amenities and you don't have the financial wherewithal to do it and why is that because homeowners don't think that they have to pay so you know flip that script and have the association operate as it should and then once you get in a better position Follow that collection policy, secure the debt, let the homeowners know, ooh, you don't want to miss an HOA payment because that's going to result in problems. That's the best thing that you can do as a volunteer board member if you want to add value and have less and less collection issues pop up in your board packets is just go after them aggressively and nip them in the butt. Over time, you'll see less and less collection files. Well, that's going to be our show for today. Thank you for listening. We'd also like to thank Corey Todd for your time and expertise. Make sure you visit our website at TennelleyLaw.com if you haven't already, where we break down this episode and link to our HOA Lawyer blog. Then stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. To share or subscribe to the Tennelly Talks podcast, visit us at TennelleyLaw.com. There you can find links to everything discussed in this episode, locate helpful resources, check out other episodes, and submit questions for future topics. And be sure to tune in next month for our next episode. As always, the views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast, please consult with your association's legal counsel. This is Tinley Talks presented by Tinley Law Group. Your community, your council.